Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 800 and 55 AM and Palestine Remembered with Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed Rimawi. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Australia's only radio program that is totally dedicated to the Palestinian cause in English language. In today's episode, uh, we will be speaking with a Palestinian activist visiting us from the United States, Huwaida Arraf. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Nasser. Good morning, Yusuf. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Uh, Nasser, uh, tell us about our guest uh, today. Well, we're very lucky because we're going to be joined by Huwaida Arraf a Palestinian-American woman and veteran civil rights activist. She has been active on the ground in Palestine, organizing and participating in non-violent direct action, as well as leading legal activity to defend the legal rights of Palestinians and their advocates around the world. Most importantly, in 2001, she co-founded the International Solidarity Movement, ISM, a Palestinian-led non-violent resistance movement involved in activities like tearing down roadblocks and walls. We're very lucky to have her with us. And without further delay, let's get started with our interview with Huwaida Arraf. We were just talking about um, your entry into Palestine and the choice you had to make with your husband about the birth of your children. This This is an experience many Palestinians have shared, whether they're from 48 or from the West Bank or Gaza or East Jerusalem. Um, can you take us through that story? Sure. Um, I have Israeli citizenship Even though I was born in the United States, my father has Israeli citizenship because our village was taken over by Israel when it was created in 1948. But my parents left Palestine and I was born in America. But my father was able to give me the uh, 48 citizenship or the Israeli citizenship, which has been very important because right now it's my only access into the country. Israel has tried to deport me from my human rights activism and it's only because I have the citizenship and they haven't stripped it from me that they haven't been able to to ban to deport me and ban me but they have banned my husband who only has US citizenship and therefore when we decided to start a family and I became pregnant it became a real issue where I was going to deliver this baby is under Israeli law and it is one of the racist laws you can only pass on citizenship to a child born abroad for one generation. My father passed it to me, so I can't pass it to my kids unless they're born there. And obviously, if you're not Jewish, that's only applicable to non-Jewish citizens. Well, see, this that's an interesting, that's a very good question. This is one of their laws that is not discriminatory in its text, so it doesn't actually say that in the text, but it's in its implementation, mm-hmm. it's discriminatory because it only affects non-Jews, mm-hmm. because Jews anywhere in the world can come and get automatic citizenship, okay. so it yeah. doesn't even matter. Um, so if I wanted to pass along my citizenship, I had to go there uh, and have the child. And so it became a question, do I give birth in the U.S. so my husband can be there for the birth of our first child, or do I go um, 
travel back home to Palestine, uh, Israel, to to have the baby. And my husband was very supportive uh, and firm that, no, we have to make sure that this child has papers so that Israel does not deny the child access to his homeland in the future and to his extended family. We tried for him to come with me. You know, we both bought plane tickets and we, we thought maybe they see I'm nine months pregnant. Maybe we can say we'll put a bond down. He'll just be here for the birth and then leave. I need help. Uh, but they didn't. They arrested him at the airport. We filed an appeal with the court. The judge did not even listen to us for five minutes and he denied the appeal. So Adam was deported and I stayed. But now my I, I did get the citizenship papers for my son and later did it again for my daughter. So now they have the um, 48 citizenship, so they can't be banned in the future, hopefully. But, you know, I, I hope that it doesn't even come to that. We keep saying our work today and spreading the word and the activism that we're doing is so that we break down this, you know, settler colonial racist system that does this to people. And so hopefully when they grow up, it you know, they don't even have to depend on that. Hopefully it won't exist. So let's go back to, 2000, uh, to 2001 and setting up the ISM. Take us through the thought process and how that happened. Well, I was only one of a few people. So I can tell you my story. I, After I finished college, I decided to move back to Palestine, realizing that I had opportunities because my parents were able to leave. I was able to have a good education. I was able to have freedoms. I know my people mostly don't have and therefore I wanted to see how I can contribute to my people's struggle. I moved to Jerusalem. At the time it was to work for a conflict resolution program that brought together Palestinian kids and Israeli kids to dialogue. We were still in the Oslo peace process period. But after the second intifada broke out, I uh, shortly thereafter I resigned from this program and it's not because I don't believe that people should talk to each other. We should always talk and dialogue as, as human beings, people to people. But I firmly believe that these programs are detrimental to our cause because they project the wrong message. It's not that, and we used to bring Palestinian and Jewish kids together. They used to become best friends, but then the Jewish kid would go back to his or her town or city likely built on the ruins of a Palestinian village and the Palestinian child back to his or her village or refugee okay. camp under the gun of an Israeli soldier, which might very well be the sister or brother of the child they just became best friends with, you know. And the the projection, the message through these organizations is, you know, just learn to dialogue and get along. And that's not it. You have to address the politics that is tearing people apart. And these programs generally don't do that, and therefore the focus is wrong, and it makes people feel good to participate in it and forget the politics. No, we have to address the root cause. So I'm firmly against these programs now, having tried them from the inside. Uh, but when the Intifada broke out, I was participating in the popular demonstrations. It was men, women, children, old, young, everybody protesting, not just Ariel Sharon's provocative visit to Al Haram al Sharif but also over seven years of a failed Oslo peace process that promised peace and an independent state, all the while giving Israel cover to continue its colonization, expanding settlements, demolishing Palestinian homes. So Palestinians said, enough. We don't want to be a part of this facade of a peace process. And the demonstrations continued. 
and the violence used against us was lethal. Israel unleashed lethal force against unarmed protesters, causing massive casualties, which inflamed people, more anger, more demonstrations, more deaths. By the end of the first month of the Second Intifada, about 127 protesters had been shot dead, and it was mainly bullet wounds to the chest and head area, so Israel had a shoot-to-kill policy. For you know this massive violence, all the experience that we've had, the decades of struggle, and many more factors, including nobody holding Israel accountable, the mainstream media blaming us for our own death, saying, yes, it ought to fat, turn us back on the peace process, we started the violence, um, not looking at Israel's violence against us, both systematic violence and, and the yeah, unleashed military force, um, the, the popular protests died down. And those with guns in the Palestinian factions were using them in a way that didn't make strategic sense. I mean, we're no military match for Israel. And so it gave Israel cover to fly their F-16s and then bomb our cities and roll their tanks in, causing even more casualties. Uh, This is where me, still looking for a way to contribute to my people's struggle, started talking to people about how, what can we do about the popular demonstration? We're not going to beat them militarily. And I learned more about the history of my own struggle and the very powerful um, movement amongst the people, the first intifada. You study this when you study Martin Luther King or Gandhi. You don't see Palestine in your history books, even though throughout the decades we've used these tactics. And I and one woman who was very active in the first intifada told me, Hoy, that you're right. Our strength is in our people and not in our arms. But we're tired from everything that we've seen, and it's got to be your, the, the young, your generation that carries it forward. So I thought maybe if we can globalize the Intifada, like call people from around the world to come stand with us, uh, we can change the power dynamics. And that was the idea. I got together with some others, and we thought it would be wonderful if thousands of people came from around the world and we created the civilian army and block the Israeli military from rolling into Palestinian villages. At the same time, we didn't know if anyone would really come. I mean, it was a war zone, and it looked like on TV and all of the casualties. And my parents were calling me from the States saying, Hawaii, come home, leave. And I said, um, Mom, Dad, I am home. I'm, I'm not leaving. But would someone who wasn't Palestinian come? We didn't know, but we tried, and we put out a call over email. And we didn't get thousands or hundreds, but we got about 50 people that came to our first campaign in August 2001. And those 50 people saw with their own eyes what was happening, uh, helped us help Palestinian villagers dismantle the roadblocks and march on checkpoints, and then went back home and told people. So if the mainstream media wasn't going to convey the information, people were going to create the the truthful alternative media and create the um this alternative source of media, and they, more people wanted to come. And so we called another campaign and more people came. And that's how it went. Now internationals, what they, if people can travel to Palestine, what they really help us do is, one, stand with Palestinian protesters side by side in the hopes that the Israeli military won't use lethal force. Uh, They have, of course, but it is less when you have international eyes watching. Two, we're sending also a message to the mainstream media, like, look, listen, this isn't 
Jewish versus Muslims and Christians or Israelis versus Palestinians. This is freedom versus occupation and colonization and oppression. And therefore, no matter your background from around the world, you can come and stand with the Palestinian freedom struggle. Three, you go back home. You tell other people. You create campaigns to change the way these governments are in support of Israel. And four, you really help break the isolation that Israel's policies impose on Palestinians who see that they're up against this massive force and military might that wants their land without the people. And and they are killing people off, moving them large scale, and you see that the world isn't doing anything about it. But when you see people coming and saying, you know, we see and we hear you and we stand with you, it's a powerful message that I think helps helps in the 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 resistance and the steadfastness um that's what the ism does that was back in 2001 our first campaign now it's been 16 17 years over 10,000 have come through and from all over the world and they're back in their home countries working on boycott divestment sanctions other campaigns to bring pressure from the outside uh, Mm -hmm. and supporting the palestinian resistance that way um, Huweida, uh, you uh, of course came uh, to America. To, sorry, you came from America to Australia, and I'm sure you've shared uh, with us in the conference or with other people in Australia some lessons from the pro-Palestine dynamic somewhere else. Because every country is a unique country when it comes to how they maybe promote the Palestinian struggle. And I'm sure you've come to know or learn a bit of the Australian pro-Palestinian dynamic. What's one thing you can share on this, the, the, the difference in how different countries promote uh, the Palestinian struggle? Maybe one thing you would like to share with our listeners about the difference in pro-Palestinian dynamics in different countries. I, I don't know if this is going to answer your question directly, but I've heard since I've got here that oh, you guys do great stuff in the U.S., we're not as active here, maybe we can learn from what you're doing in the United States. And I've talked about some actions in the United States, which are great, but I think what's happening here is good too. I think each country has to look at the various ways in which their country is supporting Israel. In the United States, there's so much because the United States gives Israel so Mm. much military aid and also political cover. I mean, they just led to not passing a U.N., General Assembly resolution, or sorry, Security Council resolution to condemn Israel's violence against our people in Gaza. It's outrageous. Uh, But what's happening here is good too. And even if you feel that it's not, it's weak, our demonstrations might not get that many people, know that it is having an impact. And I think the important thing is that we're all connected on social media now. We see what the others are doing in different countries. We can get ideas and inspiration and most important is that they can also see us in Palestine and know that they're not alone and people are raising their voices. And how we raised our voices just in these last few months, for example, over the arrest of Ahed Tamimi, that helped her get a much lesser sentence than she would have otherwise gotten. It's still atrocious, mm-hmm. but if if people didn't raise their voices around the world, she would have gotten uh, many more years. And And she's saying now focus on the other Palestinian children in this Israeli military court system. Um, one thing that we are really pushing, and which I spoke at Australian universities about, is the different ways that the students can take up 
boycott and divestment because this is what our our student groups in the United States are focusing on, looking at the university's investments, their investment portfolios. Are they invested in companies that are complicit in the occupation? And the focus has been on U.S. companies like the Caterpillar bulldozers that demolished Palestinian homes, that demolished, uh, that killed an American activist with our movement, Rachel Corey. We've marked 15 years last month uh, since her death. That was a Caterpillar bulldozer. Um, Motorola uh, and Hewlett Packard, these are all also, they provide the electronics for the Israeli military. And passing resolutions in uh, on the student government level, which um, then goes up to the university level. And at the university level, the administration, they veto them or they say, we're not going to do this. But the fact that it's getting debated and passed and students are getting interested and they're holding widespread debates and then these resolutions are passing, it's big. It's big in that it's part of the education, it's part of the building alliances on campuses where you know the movements for social change are strong. And it's big in sharing this information that more and more people agree with sanctioning Israel. And this is the way people can do it around the world. So I think great stuff is happening in Australia. Uh, If the universities can pick up more what we're doing in American universities, that would be great. So we touch on there that the boycott divestment sanctions movement, the only, I I feel personally, you know, the the only effective movement for our liberation is uh, an international coalition coalesced around those three things, boycott, divestment and sanctions. In the United States now, you've got legislative work, the Zionists, our enemies, are uh, legislating to uh, make it illegal to call for um, boycotts, divestments and sanctions. You're a lawyer. Can you take us through the challenges you're facing now and the current state of play with respect to that legislation? Yes, it is really shameful that our elected representatives are still in the pockets of the Zionists and therefore they are passing this legislation. About half of the states in the U.S. now have some form of legislation against boycotting Israel. They'll be fine with boycotting you know, U.S. states. You can boycott North Carolina for having a discriminatory laws, but you can't not boycott Israel. Israel, but not Israel. It's really shameful. Some of these have been passed. Most of them have been passed at the legislative level. Some of them have been passed through um, executive orders, like in New York and in Texas. It's the governor that has passed these executive order um, and and they vary in terms of the sanctions on people that do engage and there's one at the federal level now that has so many senators that have signed on to it that makes it criminal to boycott Israel it's been through a change in its original form you could be fined up to a million dollars and face up to 20 years in prison now they removed the 20 years in prison part and inserted some other language but it remains an all you know, civil rights organizations declare that it remains uh, unconstitutional to pass these kinds of laws restricting people's ability to, uh, basically people's political speech. Um, what our job now is trying to get them not passed in the states that they have not been passed in and at the federal level. In the states that they have passed in, we haven't taken them and can't necessarily take them to court until they affect somebody practically. They have had a practical effect in two states so far, one of them being Kansas. There was a Kansas teacher who generally contracts, gets states contracts to do uh, some teaching, and the latest contract that she was 
supposed to sign, wanted her to say that she is not engaged in a boycott of Israel and will not engage in any kind of boycott of Israel according to the law that was passed in Kansas. And she, according to her conscience, could not sign it. And also she's an active member of the Mennonite Church, which has passed a divestment resolution. And therefore, she was represented by the American Civil Liberties Union, which took it to court. And at the end of January, a federal judge declared that this law is unconstitutional and therefore there's an injunction now banning the enforcement of this law. It might be appealed, but we won that first stage. Mm -hmm. And there's a similar case right now in Arizona, and I believe it'll be a similar outcome. And when it starts affecting people, we will take it to court Mm -hmm. then. Because what these legislators, supposedly representatives, shamefully are doing are putting Israeli interests above the constitutional, are based the basic rights of the American people. The first of those is free speech. Uh, the, the reality, and I've spoken to some people about this as well, is I think there actually exists an opportunity. I mean, Bob and Mary from the Burbs have got no idea about Palestine and Israel. But the minute you say to Bob or Mary, if you choose not to buy this product or if you choose not to associate with that lecturer, that you've got the possibility of a million-dollar fine or 20 years in jail or whatever, Bob and Mary are going to say, what the F? And why are you doing this to me? And, I mean, it's going to be counterproductive. Is that the feel over there? Definitely. It is an opportunity to highlight the power of the pro-Israel lobby, the Zionist lobby, and what it is it, that it, it's able to allow our, um, to basically get our representatives to put Israel's interests above those of the uh, American people. And so it is a teaching opportunity. And and we are mobilizing like that through our networks to get average citizens to contact their members of Congress and to say, what the F, Mm -hmm. you shouldn't be doing this. Um, And we hope to build the pressure. And there have been some town halls, town hall meetings, not specifically around this, but around other issues where this have been this has been raised, and the you know the the member of Congress has been left uh, looking foolish, really. And there was one specific case that we put it on social media of people activists in New York that confronted Senator Gillibrand and said, well, "Do you know what you're supporting?" And even though there was only base a handful <clears throat> of you know, Palestinian human rights activists in the room, when they called this out, applause throughout this town hall. So you see that even, you know, average American citizens that, like you said, the average lay people supported this stance of, no, the senator should not be supporting this bill like this. So you're absolutely right. It's a a teaching opportunity, mobilizing opportunity. Um, Let's go back to Huayda. You were born... Uh, in exile, like most of us, like Nasser, myself, and most of the Palestinian population. And you are a mother of two uh, children. Uh, May Allah bless them for you. And I guess my question is, when your parents uh, conveyed the message of Palestine and identity building, and now I can uh, can see you wearing a scarf with Arabic uh, calligraphy, which is like a bit of a statement, also visual statement, which which is also as a person who appreciates Arabic language. And there's also a tattoo in Arabic. That's fantastic. So I guess, Palestine, uh, I guess my question is, now you were at the receiving end 
of that at a stage from your parents and now you are at the giving end of identity building and also three generations in exile in diaspora in diaspora what did change and, and and to what extent this 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 mission is more difficult with more generations are you know being born in exile i guess this is a very a very broad question but i want you to elaborate on this issue of identity from your personal uh, uh, reflection Sure. I actually, my parents very much held on to Palestinian uh, Arab traditions and culture raising us in the United States. So we're very strict on us, but not very political. And I think they were afraid for us in that way. They used to take us back to Palestine every one or two years to maintain the connection with our land until a certain point when I was old enough to to really realize the discrimination that we faced at the airport, the fact that we were separated and strip searched. At one point, my father stopped going back to Palestine with the family. And when I became um, in high school and I could travel by myself, I did, mainly because of the I wanted to see family. My father, though, wouldn't go back. And it was a very sad thing because at one point his sisters and brothers were saying that my grandfather didn't have much longer to live. You should come see your father before he passes and my father wouldn't go and the next time he stepped foot in Palestine was to attend his father's funeral and I thought that that was just tragic um, so I even though I wasn't raised very politicized I became politicized from what I saw and I decided that I was going to try to study the region and diplomacy I went to study at Hebrew University for one year and I saw just the how Israel builds its ambassadors and builds its programs mm. and, and indoctrinates people. Mm. And I thought that, you know, we have a tough challenge in terms of where we are and where they are along the spectrum, but we have to fight it because this is our lives and our children's lives. Um, so when I became more politicized, that scared my family and they were saying, focus on your life, don't do that, get married, have kids. Like many other parents who exactly. are worried about the future, want to protect them. Exactly. Mm. But but I tell them, that, and I look, I understand that my parents left Palestine because they wanted their family, they wanted me to be, have opportunities that I wouldn't have living under occupation or as a third-class citizen uh, inside 48. But in one way, I also blame them. I said, you gave up on Palestine, you left, and that's exactly what they want us to do. Um, not everybody has to do what I did, but the important part is to keep the memory and the attachment uh, to Palestine because people contribute in all different ways. And as long as we continue to remember and do what we can for Palestine, they will never win. And so even my though my kids are now only three and four years old, I started when they were babies telling them about Palestine. And so now my three-year-old daughter will say, She'll ask what happens, you know, why is this is happening, and I'll explain in, in simple terms. And she said to me once in the car, Mama, they took our country. Hmm? And I said, yes, they did. That's she said, well, we, we have to fight them, Mama. Yes. <laughs> and I said, yes, we have to fight, Mama. And she tells me, we have to put on our superhero costumes and fight them. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm glad that she has that that spirit and knows that there is an injustice and there's something we all have to do. And we all have a role to play mm. in that fight. Uh, and a part of it is making sure that we constantly pass down the attachment and, 
and don't forget, which is exactly what the Zionists want us to do. I think we have a room for one more question. Just very quickly, I think we'll, we'll just, I want to, your parents did a pretty good job. Okay, so forgive them. Um, well, you know, my children, the only, uh, when they were little, the only understanding they had of the city was demonstrations and free, free Palestine. And we were, what, this one day we were going to see a movie in the city and we were driving and the, the highway sort of turns left and suddenly you can see the city. And um, my eldest said, Baba, free, free Palestine? He was three years old. He's like, yes. you know, am I going to yes. get the megaphone? Um, j- just to finish off our interview, we're still running programs in, in Palestine with um, uh, the International Solidarity Movement. How can our listeners get in touch and get involved and, and uh, help? Thank you for that question. I think as we discussed, one of the most effective ways to get involved is to join local groups that are doing work on Palestine. And I know in Australia, you have quite a few of them because they have taken up initiatives, efforts, uh, the boycott, divestment and sanctions call. And I say that because... it, the pressure does have to come from outside. Inside Palestine, Israel has us completely choked off. And the, what's important is that the people stay steadfast. And we can do the demonstrations and the civil disobedience inside uh, the occupied territories. But we see the, how they shoot at us with no repercussions in Gaza. And in the West Bank, they're doing that. They, what we're doing inside is not going to end it alone. It's got to come from outside. And one of the most effective ways is to turn Israel into a pariah state until, you know, the, the system uh, crumbles. So with the ISM, Palestinians would love if you come to Palestine. But when I myself was devastated about having to leave because my husband can't get into Palestine now and I don't want to separate my kids from their family, uh, from their father, I, I mean, I take them back to Palestine, but when now I have to be based in the U.S. and my family, my friends in Palestine know how devastated I am over that. But they say the important work is outside. So yes, come if you can, but don't feel like you have to go either with the ISM or we were, when we were running boats to Gaza. Um, people ask how they can be on a boat to Gaza. It's not about being on the boat. It's about the work that you can do to raise the profile of what's happening uh, back home. If you want to join the International Solidarity Movement, please do look up. You can Google International Solidarity Movement or the website is pal, P-A-L, solidarity.org, all one word. There's a section there on, on how you can join. But don't feel like you have to drop everything and go. There's something each one of us can do every day of our lives to contribute to the struggle. With this, we have come to the end of our uh, episode uh, today. We've spoken uh, with Huwaid Arraf. And until we meet next week, uh, same time, 9.30 in the morning, this is Nasser and Youssef wishing you the best of time and salam. And have a great day.